his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. US Q3 2023. It's BMAS and Beamer. News Radio 930 WBEN. Welcome in. Brian Mazeroski here with you on BMAS and Beamer. Joe is, uh, well, where did Joe go? He was just here. And now I guess he's going to be back later on. Um, but I'm not sure if that's next or later. Um, he'll be around here somewhere, I guess. So uh, just me today that <laughs> you're with uh, BMAS and Beamer here on WBEN. Uh, we're, we have a lot of stuff to get to. Uh, we're most likely going to be joined by Congressman Brian Higgins uh, at some point uh, later on in the show to uh, talk about a big announcement he's making today when it comes to uh, violence in the city and some of the efforts to combat gun violence and support a lot of the groups that have been trying to do just that. We're talking uh, uh, Mad Dad's. We're talking the Stop the Violence Coalition, the Buffalo Peacemakers. Um, all of these groups are, are getting a tremendous amount of support from the federal government. Uh, got a little bit of support yesterday from the state, but uh, federal government sending a lot of support on their way. What exactly does that mean? What will it be used for? And then also a look at the border, which we're going to talk about in just a moment uh, with Congressman Brian Higgins, who's going to join us at some point a little bit later on in the show, uh, most likely, as we say. I, I do want to touch on this story. Uh, Nicholas Cage is back in the back in the headlines. This is another one out of the who could have saw this coming. That's what we, we talked about yesterday. It was a who could have seen this coming type of uh, show yesterday. Of course, this was going to come, and of course, this was going to come. Uh, we heard about the uh, Nicholas Cage was set to play Joe Exotic, Right, the Tiger King, in a movie, he was going to uh, play Joe Exotic in a dramatization of the Netflix documentary series Tiger King, which right, you you need what everyone was clamoring for after watching a eight hour long documentary was I need to watch this but dramatized a little bit more. I didn't get enough in the eight hours, so we need to add just a little bit more. Why don't we make a movie about it? Well, that was uh, announced very uh, quickly after this became a smash hit. Everybody was watching it early 2020, over a year ago. Well, Nick Cage is now out speaking to Variety. He said that Amazon Studios scrapping the project entirely. He said, I want to clear the record. I read two excellent scripts I thought were excellent. But the project is being scrapped. He said, 
I think Amazon ultimately felt that it was material that had become past tense because it took so long to come together. What they needed was like a Hallmark movie type of operation here to get this going. The movie needed to come out two weeks after everybody watched Tiger King and they were still talking about it. The hype surrounding Tiger King, it's, it's passed on. I have to explain what I mean when I'm talking about Tiger King now because you haven't seen a reference to it in at least six months. At least six months. And so now Nicolas Cage is no longer going to play. There's no longer going to be a movie. I think I called this back in uh, when this was announced in early 2020 in like uh, March or April. Oh, he's going to play a movie? What's that going to come out in two years when no one cares about this anymore? And we're pretty much all done with Tiger King. Uh, who knows? Maybe it will come back into the news and the uh, the whole project will be back. I have a feeling it's not going to. But they need to get those Hallmark movie people on it, right? If they're going to do this and they want to turn it around really quickly, capitalize on some of that publicity, I kind of feel like that's the way that you have to go. Anyways, that's not happening. That's in the I told you so uh, category of things when talking about Nick Cage and Tiger King. Uh, on the board, we're a week away now from the latest deadline, July 21st, uh, the latest border deadline of when a decision is going to be made when it comes to the U.S.-Canada border. It happens about a week from now, and a lot of people are, are hoping to see some sort of progress, right? They're hoping to see uh, something change when it comes to uh, the border Hoping to see, you know, anything, right? Well, the latest news out of Toronto is not to expect anything that different uh, happening when it comes. Minor changes in the works as the U.S.-Canada border restrictions are set to renew. This is from the Toronto Star. They're reporting this. Uh, just a, a few hours ago, early this morning, that really don't expect too much to change when it comes to the U.S.-Canada border because it, not much is going to happen. It mostly looks like it's going to continue on with the people who are able to cross the border now will still be able to cross the border. Uh, according to, this is from the Toronto Star, two sources saying that in the short term, Minor tweaks are expected. It remains unclear when Canada will throw open its doors to fully vaccinated tourists or business travelers. So it doesn't really go into detail as to what those minor tweaks are. But if we're talking about not throwing open its doors to tourists or business travelers who are fully vaccinated... I mean, minor seems like the key word there when it comes to the border. That's the report out of the Toronto Star. Uh, the report also points out something that is, I mean, it's pretty strange that while some people no longer have to quarantine for 14 days upon arrival, that some others need to uh, quarantine even with people who are unable to do exactly that, right? So if you are no longer required to quarantine because you're a Canadian citizen who is fully vaccinated and making your way back to Canada, but if you're traveling with a child, you have children too young to have a full vaccination or any type of vaccination, 
they have to quarantine for 14 days even if their parents don't. I think that's something that kind of slipped through just a little bit. Those who are partially vaccinated also still required to quarantine for 14 days, including a mandatory three-day hotel stay that's on you, by the way, you have to pay for if you arrive by air. So if you're flying into Canada, you're being put up in the COVID hotel for three days. You're not actually being put up. You're paying for it. And that's part of your quarantine, which I still do not understand how that is part of the whole process. But that's part of the rule in Canada. Uh, and the children that did not get a whole lot of uh, attention, I think, when it comes to the ins and outs of those rules. Children too young to be vaccinated. So that basically... Uh, say goodbye to families crossing the border. It is not going to happen, at least not now. Maybe that's one of the things that's part of this minor tweak, but it really doesn't sound like anything's going to change. And we are, of course, talking about a week from right now. The 21st is the next time that these are going to be looked at a little bit. I know a lot of people are wondering what's going to happen with the Blue Jays. Are they going to go back? We're going to need an answer on that, presumably within the next couple of days. Uh, Their soccer teams in Toronto Uh, that they're planning on playing. They're planning on playing against Orlando. They want that to happen at home. They want that to be this upcoming Saturday. So that approval would be needed sometime in the very near future, uh, possibly today, and that could give an indication as to whether or not the Blue Jays stay. Maybe an indication as to what exactly is happening uh, with, you know, uh, uh, everyone else, with the border in and of itself. I still don't understand what, they think is going to happen. I don't understand how the border closure at this level is still popular enough to be looked at this way and to have these restrictions around it. Now, this is the one thing you have to keep in mind, and one thing we've talked about so many times with Jamie Fiegel, uh, Fiegel, Karen Joyce, immigration law, and she's pointed out that, you know, listen, over the course of the last year plus, Nothing that's being implemented is being done so without the at least presumed support of the Canadian people when it comes to Canada reopening their border. Because that's what the prime minister is going to do. If it's unpopular, at the end of the day, these are all political decisions, right? If something is popular politically, if there is an overwhelming majority of Canadians who are pushing and being vocal about the U.S.-Canada border, uh, being vocal about uh, wanting to allow cross-border travel, wanting to allow international tourists, it would have happened by now. But that's not the case. So that is, at the end of the day, kind of the driver of a lot of this decision. Because if you look at it from a factual standpoint, I'm not seeing where the legs are to stand on. I mean, what do they think if if we're talking about this in the terms of COVID, right? In terms of the data that we're seeing, what is the idea here? If you open up the U.S.-Canada border, what do they think is going to happen? In Vancouver, they just got the okay to shut down a large field hospital that was held in a convention center that never once saw a COVID patient. There were no COVID patients in there, and just now they're shutting it down. But it goes to show that, I mean, the picture there is maybe better than a lot of people have believed. Uh, They have a ton of vaccines. Their infection rate has plummeted 
over the course of the last two months. They have, uh, I think, almost as many people vaccinated as we do here in the U.S. And those were two of the things that have been pointed to the entire time as, well, we need to get this. We need to get this uh, done. Uh, Justin Trudeau saying that we need to have 75%. Well, no, maybe 85%. Uh, This is what Trudeau said. He said, we have to get up to 75% fully vaccinated, up into the 80 range fully vaccinated, perhaps, if we're going to be safe. So a a lot of guesswork, a lot of who knows uh, what it has to be done. They met that goal already. It was changed earlier this month to say, well, now it's a little too close. And they're still acting like if they open up the border, that all of a sudden there's going to be a rush of hospitalizations and deaths because of COVID. Where, look around. I mean, look at the beer tent in old home days. Look at the taste of Buffalo. Look what's going on since we opened up. And we mentioned before, and it's true again, if you look at the latest data in Western New York, and that's primarily our focus, right? Western New York and what's happening in Toronto. Five counties included in the Western New York region 15 people in the hospital due to COVID across five counties. So to assume that just because we open up this imaginary line, now all of a sudden we're going to <laughs> switch things and that number is going to drastically change, I I don't see how you can truthfully make that assumption based on the data that we have available to us. We have Congressman Brian Higgins joining us on the line right now uh, with a look at this. And I I know you've uh, had a similar sentiment all throughout, and we are a week away from what could be another set of changes. It's being reported in Toronto as maybe only minor changes, that uh, minor tweaks, they actually said, in the Toronto Star when that uh, new expiration date comes a week from now when it comes to the border. What are you hearing, if anything, about what might happen in one week? Well, we're following the science. The science says that uh, Canadians are vaccinated at a much higher percentage than they were 10 days ago. And if you have full vaccination, if you're fully vaccinated, you have strong immunity against getting COVID or giving COVID. They need to open the border. Uh, this continued delaying without any vision, without any plan, is complete and utter nonsense. We've been told, all of us, for the past 16 months, follow the science, follow the facts, follow the data. And on the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website, they have guidance as it relates to COVID. And it is very, very explicit. It says if you are fully vaccinated, you can return to pre-pandemic activity without wearing a face mask, without social distancing, and without quarantine. The CDC is the most prestigious public health agency in the world. Typically, as we know, they are very, very conservative. What this speaks to is the power of the vaccine uh, to provide immunity for those who have been vaccinated. We pushed the White House to put a million uh, Moderna vaccines into Canada. We helped, uh, us as a nation, helped to increase the vaccination rate of Canadians. Prime Minister and the President of the United States have to get together and outline the plan for opening the border. Not a plan that has 
you know, uh, metrics that are, all the metrics have been achieved. <laughs> and that's the thing that is so frustrating for people. And that's the thing that is driving public opinion in Canada to change. A month ago, the majority of people wanted to keep the border closed. That is no longer the case. And those who support opening the border by this summer or early fall, uh, those numbers are increasing because people are following the science, the facts, and the data. Uh, on that public opinion part, I, I'm wondering how much more of a push there needs to be because uh, what we were saying earlier in the show and what has been really true over the course of the last year, we're talking with a lot of border attorneys who say it's just it wasn't popular in Canada. So because the idea of opening the border isn't popular, uh, you're not going to see the prime minister in Canada kind of rush to do what's unpopular amidst that. You mentioned that now the tide is turning a little bit, but it has to hurt this effort to reopen the border that – I mean, for a large majority of people in the country as a whole who aren't living near where the U.S.-Canada border is, it's probably not an issue they think about a lot. It's something that means so much to a a few amount of people. I mean, it means their livelihoods, means their loved ones. It's all about family. It's it's part of their life. But for much of the country, it's not really even thought of at all. And I'm wondering how big of a hurdle... You're seeing that prove to be right now. Well, first of all, with respect to a rush, the border's been closed for 16 months. And we were told, all of us, by public health officials, what would have to be achieved in order for the border to open. Those metrics are being met every day, and therefore the border should be open. I would tell you that from Fort Erie up through the greater Toronto area, it's called the province of Ontario. Nearly 40% of the entire population of Canada lives in the province of Ontario. The province of Ontario is the fastest-growing uh, province and economy in all of the country of Canada. So I would argue that uh, a vast majority of Canadians realize that our two countries are intertwined, economically, certainly, but also in terms of life quality, in terms of, of every aspect of our lives here in Buffalo and Western New York and in Ontario were affected, were affected by each other. Every component of the Western New York economy. Canadians spend $15 million a year in healthcare services in Buffalo and Western New York. We have two low-cost carriers at Buffalo Niagara International Airport for one reason, the added customer base in the province of Ontario. Our retail economy in Western New York profoundly influenced by the Canadian shopper. So I would say, and it's, it's the same is true for Canadians, particularly in the province of Ontario as it relates to Western New York. So I think that is what's turning public opinion, plus a clear argument based on fact that vaccinations are a very powerful medicine against this disease. And, you know, there's a lot of confusion. I understand that. But even Again, the CDC, even when taking into consideration the variants, including the Delta variant, this, these vaccines that are available today and are in the arms of Canadians as well, is a very, is very powerful immunity against giving or getting uh, COVID. This vaccine, the messenger RNA, is probably the greatest biomedical advancement 
uh, in the past 50 years. It is an incredible achievement. We should be celebrating that and acknowledging it uh, in many ways, including especially opening the U.S. Canadian border. The people have been, have been separated for loved ones for the past 16 months without a vision about when they may be able to be reunited. That's wrong. Uh, people who have cottages and, and homes in Canada that live here in Buffalo and Western New York, fully vaccinated, can't go and enjoy their property, that is wrong. And then you give an arbitrary exclusion to hockey players because, not the science, but because of the NHL playoff schedule. And now there's potentially a decision to return the Toronto Blue Jays who've been playing in Buffalo since the season started uh, back to uh, Toronto because they want their team back. Uh, these, these decisions are arbitrary. And, and the people that should be given the opportunity to move across the border are those people that we've been talking about for the past six months at least. And the thing that's changed here, Brian, and it needs to be acknowledged, is that there is now a vaccine, a powerful medicine that gives people immunity from getting or getting, getting or giving COVID. And we'll see what happens uh, with Toronto. It would be uh, quite something to see all these Major League Baseball teams get an exemption when uh, people who own property would not be able to cross. I want to quickly, uh, before we let you go, you're on your way to make a big announcement. Uh, $5 million in federal funds for violence prevention. And a lot of this is going to be able to uh, go right into community groups. Um, what sort of difference is this going to make in addressing the problem that we're all seeing? Well, look at where the violent crime is existing. It's in a very concentrated area by and large. Uh, so the best way, uh, good policing, effective policing, is that which includes the neighborhood that you want to be safe. You know, the, the, the essential unit of society is the neighborhood, and that requires having healthy uh, communities. It requires having parks, and it requires having safe streets. Uh, groups like uh, the Peacekeepers, Stop the Violence, uh, Most Valuable Parents, they are deeply uh, invested, immersed in the community, and this provides them with resources toward the goal of diverting uh, violent crime activity by working with the police. So we believe that the combination of ECMC, ECMC, what do they do? They heal the body and the mind. What do the pastors do, the clergy? What do they do in communities? They, they, they heal the soul. And the combination of that uh, toward the goal of preventing violent crime before it happens is a small down payment toward healthier communities in Buffalo, but throughout the nation as well. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, always great to have the opportunity. That's Congressman Brian Higgins, who's been on with us live here on WBEN. It's Beamaz and Beamer. News Radio 930 WBEN. Welcome back here, BMS and Beamer. Uh, just me hanging out with you today on WBEN. And if you missed our, our last segment, Congressman Brian Higgins joined us. I uh, called in to talk a little bit about, we were talking, of course, about the border. It's a week away from that next deadline, the next round of changes. And uh, right now the report out of Toronto is just minor tweaks 
uh, to expect and nothing else. Uh, at least that's the report for right now. So uh, we'll watch out for that. But we also uh, ended the conversation with something he's going to uh, shed a little bit more light on about an hour from right now. And that is a good amount of public money, um, federal funds, going to address crime in city neighborhoods. And a lot of that is going to head directly to uh, some groups uh, like the Stop the Violence Coalition, like the uh, Buffalo Peacemakers, um, and plenty of other groups that are active in the city in working with the community and speaking out against crime. Mad Dads is another one of them. And uh, they were uh, pretty, uh, I I think, excited to receive the help from the state yesterday. And now it's $5 million in federal funds for violence prevention. Uh, Not clear exactly where all of that is going to go right now, but it's part of that American Rescue Plan. And those money will be used to address the rising number of shootings harming neighborhoods across Buffalo and across western New York as well. And, And how exactly... Will that help? How exactly will that be able to make a difference? Uh, It's something we asked the congressman about a little bit ago, and it's something we're going to talk about now with Paul McQuillan, who's joining us now. He's with New Yorkers Against Gun Violence, also the Stop the Violence Coalition. And want to look at this issue of how you address the problem. Uh, Paul, that question, uh, that very vague question of how you address the problem I guess it's the million-dollar question that you've been working on for years. Well, we have, Brian, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about this. Um, you know, gun violence in this country costs the uh, the American people $350 million a year. So um, the, the little bit of money that's being uh, generated by the federal government and, and our state and local uh, partners um, – doesn't put a big dent in, in, into what the costs are. So it's really, it's really paying back or, or giving us the opportunity to, uh, to fight gun violence and, and to uh, reduce the violence and hopefully reduce the cost to the, to the American people. So it's really an investment. Yeah, I think a lot of people see this and you're looking at the investment. You say, okay, um, you know, these groups are, are doing good work. Um, we need to address the problem somehow. But then you see some of the figures pointed out, whether it's in the you know six figures or $5 million from the federal government that we're hearing today. And the next question is, well, how exactly does that help anything? Are, are we just throwing money at a problem? I'm assuming, obviously, there's going to be a plan. But how in particular does funding help some of these organizations that are on the street? Well, you know, the, the, the real problem is, is the gun violence, unfortunately, is targeted in certain communities. Um, it's communities of, of uh, poverty, impoverished uh, communities. It's poverty uh, uh, communities uh, where the educational levels are low or uh, access to uh, a lot of uh, services and educational opportunities and, and work opportunities are lacking. So I think a lot of the money is going to be invested in that area as well. Um, it's going to put boots on the grounds to uh, to, to let the uh, uh, gun uh, users know that know that we're out here and, and we're, they're going to be watching. We're going to be watching. Um, but it's also to give opportunities, whether it's uh, employment opportunities or educational opportunities. Um, Stop the violence is engaged in a thing called safe passages uh, at, during the school year, which which allows uh, boys and young men and women, boys and girls, to 
uh, access school um, without, uh, hopefully without violence. So their mere presence on the street really, really uh, is a source of comfort to a lot of students, and it's also a it's a deterrent to, to those who might otherwise engage in gun violence. Yeah. And this, the, the money really, um, for way too long, these organizations have operated with little to no money, uh, basically on volunteer basis, uh, as community activists, individuals involved and concerned with, with what's going on in the community. So this, this is an opportunity to really enlist um, the community to have them step forward and uh, to be more proactive in uh, helping us stem gun violence. And, you know, some of these programs that you're talking about right now, um, geared at basically getting kids interested in school, putting kids on a path to a career or something like that, or helping them discover uh, a career, a job path, something that they might be interested in. What is the success that you're seeing with these programs in the way they exist right now uh, why is there confidence there that this is the way to solve this problem or, or if not totally solve it help it well brian at this point we know one thing for certain and that is doing nothing doesn't work so we really have to try to address the issue and that's that's to give the kids confidence gives and i hate to use the word kids but to give students confidence that they can go go to and from school in, in safety, that they, they can play in their yards and in their parks safely, that they can uh, be with their friends and not have drive-by shootings. And um, so it's also going to, my understanding is, and there's a, a community meeting this afternoon as well, that it's going to target social media posts and it's going to be more proactive in the law enforcement uh, areas as well. So not only are they we investing more money in community groups like the Peacemakers and Stop the Violence and others, but it's also targeting, it's also providing money for law enforcement, for, for the federal government to get involved with the ATF and the FBI and the Erie County Sheriffs and the Buffalo Police Department and New York State Police. So there's, there's a whole lot going on. Um, you know, we're very fortunate in New York State that we have some of the best gun laws in the country, but that doesn't stop the guns from coming in from other states with, with uh, easy ac- easier access to guns than we have in, in New York State. So I, I think it, it's a multi-pronged approach. Uh, law enforcement's got to play a big part in it. Uh, our government leaders have to play a big part in it. Again, it's not just throwing money at the solution or at the problem, but it's being part of the solution, uh, having dialogue and, and contact with community leaders. You know, for far too long, um, Stop the Violence and the Peacemakers and those organizations have have, have pretty much been um, sole, sole activists in these areas without a partner in government. Um, so, so that's what's needed, and, and this is a great opportunity to do that. And we appreciate everything that um, um, th- that the government agencies are doing for us in government leaders. And I am I am involved with both the Peacemakers and Stop the Violence, and I'm also the executive director of Gun Sense New York, which is an upstate organization. Um, so, you know, you're right. We've been doing this for a long time, um, and it's about time that we're. Uh, we're being supported by, by, by the government and by those who, who are elected to help uh, solve some of these critical issues. Uh, you, part of what you mentioned is a presence, you know, having a presence in the community. And that's one of the things that I think a lot of people are looking at in terms of policing, that simply having a, a police presence, a, a visible presence in the community can do 
a long uh, can go a long way into stopping some of this violence. I, I mean, you think about it in terms of, I mean, anywhere you are, if there's a police presence there, you know, I don't, maybe you're a little bit more buttoned up and you're less likely to, uh, uh, whether it's speeding or committing a crime or something like that, um, to stray off the narrow path. Um, what when, when it comes to presence, what do these groups do that is different from what can be offered from an increased police presence? Do they go hand in hand? Is it completely different? Um, uh, what's the idea there? No, you're, you're exactly right, and it does go hand in hand. And, and Buffalo is very fortunate. Mayor Brown and the commissioner, uh, Buffalo Police Commissioner, have engaged in a uh, uh, a program of community policing where um, the Buffalo Police are partners uh, for the most part with with the Stop the Violence and the the peacemakers. Um, they reach across the divide to tr- try to help the community to uh, be be more aware of. Uh, the opportunities and, and uh, the presence um, of each other, but but you're right that there there is a presence, um, but it, it's more important for the Buffalo Police to be known in the community as as solvers of problems, and and, and um, that it's important that we keep the Buffalo Police and, and as well as all other law enforcement as partners in this because we're in this together. This this is our community. Um, so the presence of the of the peacemakers and the stop the violence organizations, combined with that of the Buffalo Police and, and other police agencies, goes a long way in assuring um, the community that that their problems and considerations are are being are being uh, addressed. Um, I've been on the streets with the Stop the Violence Coalition and the Peacemakers. And, and you can see the attitudes change in the community when, 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 they're, in, when they're involved in the community, when they're uh, in the neighborhoods. Uh, people come out of their homes and talk to the peacemakers and Stop the Violence uh, community organizers. Um, there's a sense of calming that they, that they bring to the community. And not only that, I, I think they do instill a bit of fear into those who would be more inclined to engage in violence, knowing that the peacemakers and stop the violence are, are in the community. Um, I, I know you know about a year ago, uh, a, a, housing, a house project for stop the violence was burned to the ground by, by uh, people who didn't want us in the community. So it brings a sense of, of um, safety to members of the community, but it also, um, strikes a little bit of fear into those who would rather engage in violence than than uh, peaceful advocacy. You mentioned some of the presence uh, and maybe a calming, reassuring presence. I think there's this sentiment right now or this idea that uh, police officers are unwelcome in a lot of these areas. And what we heard from uh, Congressman Higgins, uh, very targeted areas where the violence is happening, that there uh, is a negative attitude, um, that, you know, they're not respected in these areas. I, I, I'm not sure if that's really the case. Uh, there's this idea that, you know, police are not welcome. But I feel like time and time again, what you hear from people who are actually living in these neighborhoods is, that they're very welcome, that, you know, most of the people want to see police officers walking around, uh, taking uh, part in the community, having a visible presence there 
that for some reason the narrative has become that that's uh, an unwelcome or that's being too aggressive uh, when I don't know. I, I don't think that's the case. So what are you hearing? Brian, I couldn't agree with you more that, that the presence of the Buffalo police in combination with the, uh, the peacemakers and Stop the Violence brings a, a calming sense of, of, uh, to, to the community. You know, the narrative about the police being unwelcome, that, that's fostered by, by outside agitators, by people who are trying to cause trouble, stir up trouble. We have enough trouble here. We, we need to partner with, with those who have uh, the same ideals and the same goals in, in mind. And that's making our community safer and that's making our streets safer and our schools and our playgrounds safer. And we can't do that without the Buffalo police. And, and I think from everything, uh, every indication I have and every, all the conversations I've had with uh, law enforcement and with, with the mayor's office and, and others is, is what a great partnership that we do have in Buffalo that, you know, the, the Buffalo police see the, the yellow shirts of the Stop the Violence Coalition or they see the peacemaker hat or whatever, and that they know that they've got friends and they've got, they've got support in the community and in the neighborhood, and, and, and they feel welcome there. And in verse 2, that when the Buffalo police are actively engaged in something, they know when Stop the Violence or the peacemaker show up that they've got support in the community and that, um, you know, that they work hand-in-hand hand to to bring a sense of calm, even during a period of crisis uh, on the street, that uh, working together hand in hand, they, they can do so much uh, to bring to bring that sense of calm and peace to the, to the community. And again, as I said, and it does uh, strike a little bit of fear into those who uh, are inclined to engage in violence and, and other activities. I'm not expecting you to have an answer for this because, I mean, frankly, I don't have an answer for this, and I'm I'm still struggling to figure it out. But I don't know. Maybe you do have more insight as to why that narrative is kind of being put out there to begin with. If it seems so counter to what you know we're actually hearing from residents in these communities, um, that you know we want to see less police, that uh, it's a it's an aggressive. Um, look uh, that uh, having more police on the streets of having that involvement in the community. I, I mean, what is I'm struggling to think like the end game or the, uh, you, you know, the reasoning behind that level of thinking that is from everything we've heard over the last week really running counter to what we're actually hearing on the street. Brian, I, I, I think a certain element in our society uh, strives uh, and thrives in bringing fear to uh, to communities, whether it's a fear of vaccines or it's a fear of of the police community or if it's a fear of uh, social justice or, or, or fear of voting rights. I just think that certain people engage in, in fear tactics, um, and, and, and that's how they see as, as the best way forward for them is, is to oppose and oppress other people. So by 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 condemning the Buffalo police or trying to condemn the Buffalo police and, and targeting them as anti-community uh, involved, you know, that, that doesn't strike a narrative that, that strikes with the, the people in the community who, who live on the streets and deal, deal with the Buffalo police. Um, you know, I couldn't be happier um, with the involvement that the, the, the Buffalo police have, and they reach out to stop the violence and the peacemakers. And in the same way, we uh, we reach out to the Buffalo police. 
it's not only it's not only for violence prevention, but it's community support. It's uh, they come to our picnics, they they come to our meetings, they 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 partner with us, um, and, and and we're happy to support the Buffalo Police. And any notion that any of us want to see less in police involvement in the community or would want to see the police defunded is it's only a way to to drive fear into the community and to make enemies where there are no enemies. And, you know, it, it's a great symbiotic relationship that we have. And, um, and the only way to break that is to, is to try to, to drive us apart. And, and that's the end game for, for certain elements of the community. And, and, and that doesn't, that doesn't bode well for any of us. And it, it's not a positive for us. Hey, Paul, I uh, really appreciate the time on uh, what I know was short notice this morning, but uh, thank you for coming on with us, and good luck at uh, these meetings tonight. There's going to be an announcement, I know, in about a half hour on more funding for uh, your organization, other organizations, and then also a meeting a little bit later on this afternoon at 4. That's Paul McQuillan uh, with a number of groups, Peacemakers, Stop the Violence Coalition, uh, New Yorkers Against Gun Violence. He has an active role in a lot of that. And I, it makes perfect sense to me. And it's not just Paul saying that. Uh, Murray uh, from the Stop the Violence Coalition was saying the same thing last week. They want to see police on the streets. He wanted. He was saying a return of checkpoints. It, it just makes too much sense to me, right? I mean, I grew up in uh, Looney Acres uh, most of my life, and that's uh, that part of Amherst. And I, I, I don't know if you're allowed to. We all call it Looney Acres. We live there. I don't know if that's offensive to call it that now in 2021. I haven't lived there in a, a little while. But I, I know a lot of people, you'd feel a little bit better when there's a, a police car, an Amherst police car, driving around the area. You know nothing's going to go on if not for that brief uh, you know, few minutes of time. It, only, it makes perfect sense to me. And that's what we're hearing from people who are actually in these neighborhoods in the city of Buffalo. That it's the same feeling. And you can think about yourself. You're driving down uh, the 190. You're on the 290, wherever you are. If you're on that speed trap, uh, Tonawanda 290, one of the biggest ones in the entire state. Uh, you know where to slow down, where you think there might be a police presence. I, I think the same ideas kind of apply. The same ideas applied when I was growing up and, and you saw that presence. And the same ideas you heard from Paul, you heard from so many other voices, uh, might just do the same thing in these areas of Buffalo. Well, I know uh, we've got uh, much more on this to come later on today at that community discussion, and you'll hear some of that on WBEN uh, when I come back tomorrow morning, uh, 5 o'clock, bright and early. Uh, set your alarm. I'm expecting you to. It's 9.55. Thanks for tuning in, Beamaz and Beamer, on WBEN. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. <laughs> But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. 
Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 